And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. I have an incredible episode today, and not only is it an independently incredible episode, it goes so well. The logical next step from last week's episode on manners, we have Jason Merrill of Blackbird Finery talking about Edwardian and Victorian men's fashion accessories, and while this may seem irrelevant in today's standards, I highly disagree. I think it's very important. This was arguably one of the heights of fashion. Uh, ever since World War II, things have kind of gone downhill slowly with a steep decline after World War II. Men's fashion just is not what it was. I think that we could really take a lesson from those times and, and kind of step it up a little bit. Our, uh, the classic t-shirt and basketball short weekend warrior kind of look, uh, I don't know, when you compare it to a really nice tailored suit and a hat, I don't think there's any comparison. Obviously, those listening to this episode are going to say, hey, man, you went on that crazy rant about Downton Abbey with manners. Well, isn't fashion just as important on the show? Yeah, it is. It totally is. And no, I haven't lost my mind. I love the show, but I haven't changed my life around it. But I do think it's important to combine these two shows back to back so you can feel the subtle nuances that Julian Fellows was trying to communicate as you put together this opus, this grand theatrical play that is Downton Abbey. And this will give you a little bit more appreciation of the hidden nuances of the show. So you're welcome, America. This is the next British invasion. And I believe that Jason Merrill will echo my sentiments on today's program because he is arguably the most well-dressed man in Atlanta, uh, possibly the United States, and he's going to set us all straight. Jason, thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you for having me. Now, this comes at a great time because we've just finished an episode on manners. And as I'm sure you know, manners and high fashion go hand in hand like a fine wine and a piece of dark chocolate. You can choose which one of those you want to be. Um, <laughs> but I think you would agree. And that also rhymes. Yes. So now I think when we talk about high fashion, here are a couple names that come to mind that I think everyone is familiar with. So first of all, we have the penguin, Oswald Cobblepot. Um, he dressed in, I would imagine, Victorian and Edwardian era, correct? Yes. Okay. Closer to your your white tie today. Okay. What what you would imagine is white tie. Right. Which is really, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna be a supervillain, that's a very stiff outfit to wear because, as we will get into, hopefully, white tie is the most formal of all dress codes, um, and usually required people to help you get into it. So this is no small task. Yeah. Uh, we also have the Joker, also from Batman's uh, Rogues Gallery, who loved to wear ascots and suits. Um, and he was, he was he's a high fashionista when it comes to this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, we got Fred from Scooby-Doo. Um, he kind of nailed the ascot, which went out of style for a long time. And in my opinion, uh, when I think of ascots, I think of Fred from Scooby-Doo. And of course, we've got two people who are very identical, but from two entirely different species. And that is Mr. Peanut and Uncle Moneybags. They both kind of have the same look. Uh, you know, your top hat, your monocle, um, but they're very two different people. I think Mr. Peanut has a cane and Mr. Yes. Pennymegs does not. So um, do you have any others that would go into this list that we can use as an archetype as we describe all this stuff? Uh, there's a ton. I mean, well, Jeeves and Worcester mm -hmm. fit both sides since Jeeves would be wearing his formal attire Pretty much everywhere. Sure, this is Ask Jeeves' and, fame, right? Uh, well, no, oh, from no. Uh, uh, P.G. Woodhouse's stories of Jeeves and Worcester. That's where <laughs> Ask Jeeves got the name. Got it. Okay. Uh, Bertie Worcester was a near do well layabout, uh, not very bright, uh, young, uh, moneyed individual 
and Jeeves was his valet, his servant, mm. who was uh, the far more intelligent of the pair. And uh, P.G. Woodhouse, who was a British writer who lived in America for most of his life, uh, wrote a tremendous number of short stories and novels featuring the pair. Got it. And now they're known for um, the television adaptation that Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie did back in the 90s. Oh, okay. And they pretty much nailed it exactly. I mean, that's the, you can't get any better portrayal than uh, Fry and Laurie as Jeeves and Worcester. Got it. Now, I, as, as I've mentioned before, I'm a, I've suddenly become a very big Downton Abbey fan. And while researching yes. manners and fashion, that adds, there's a whole like com- complex layer going on underneath the surface that most people aren't aware of uh, that's going on in that show, specifically with dress, because, you know, um, the Lord, Lord Grantham is constantly in white tie. Uh, and sometimes in, mm-hmm. in, in leisure suit, but or, and I'm sorry, in uh, in business attire. But he's, I mean, it's it's like once once you understand this, that show takes on a whole a whole new meaning. It's it's incredible stuff. Yes. Um, now, do you now? I mentioned uh, you mentioned a couple words there that that I was curious about. Is it required to talk like Mr. Burns when you dress in this type of attire? Uh, it's not required. You find yourself. Uh, being a little more formal in speech and manner, sure. the the nicer you are dressed, but it's it's certainly not required. Okay, no no blue laws on the books or anything like that. No. Uh, now, how did you get into this? Because this is a very unique thing to be into, and you've kind of carved out. Uh, you know, you're kind of a master at this now. So, what what got you started on this path? Uh, to be honest, uh, the older I got the more of a peacock I became, as my wife puts it. Um, when, when she and I were getting married, she was having a dress made. And at the time, I already owned a tuxedo. So for my wedding, I was not going to wear something that was already sitting in my closet. Okay. So the, the same individual who made her dress made me uh, – well, and we were thinking – I already have a standard black tie, modern tuxedo. What's more formal than that? And we thought something Victorian. Mm -hmm. So this was 1999, and I had made a double-breasted waistcoat out of a gold uh, flirtily patterned fabric and a purple velvet calf-length frock coat. And I still wear that whenever I get the chance because I just love that coat and and the waistcoat as well. And I started – I've worked for a variety of uh, fantasy and science fiction conventions here in Atlanta. So during the conventions, I started wearing the waistcoats and some ascots and just trying to look a little nicer than the T-shirt and jeans that everyone else was wearing. And it got a huge response. People really liked that. And at some point, I want to say eight, nine years ago, I realized, why don't I just do this every day? I mean, I've got plenty of waistcoats. I like the look. Uh, I finally learned how to tie a bow tie, which took forever. (laughs) But um, that's now my daily uniform is is basically, you know, nice shoes, dark jeans or trousers, a dress shirt with French cuffs, a bow tie, a waistcoat, occasionally the pocket watch with the, the chain through the waistcoat. And once again, people really, really respond to that. They really like the fact that I'm not just wearing, you know, for example, at work, everybody else wears polos, khakis. Uh, even our CEO wears a dress shirt without a tie. But I'm just more comfortable that way. It's just it's something I've grown to uh, enjoy wearing the nicer stuff. Well, it definitely sets you apart because – you know, there's a lot of adages, dress for the job you want, you know, people respect, you know, if you're in a suit. Right. And I think that these, I think that there's really something to that. Now, there is an over-the-top kind of version, but I don't think that, you know, I don't think that dressing up for work is a bad thing at all. As a matter of fact, I like to go with formal Friday, so everyone goes casual Friday. It's kind of a little trick of mine that I'm letting, you know, millions of people know right now. But I go the opposite direction. So I'll come to work on Fridays in a suit while everyone else is dressed in T-shirts. And yep. I look even better than I normally would. Yep. And I, I have been known to do 
three piece Thursdays on occasion. <laughs> I have a a nineteen. It, it, I realized it's a fifty year old suit, but it's a uh, English city suit that had been custom made for someone mm-hmm. in nineteen sixty seven. Wow! And it happens to fit me like a glove. Really. I got it on auction for a rather great price because it wouldn't fit anybody else. So nobody else really bid on it. But uh, I'll wear that on three-piece Thursdays. You know, it's kind of amazing because the stuff we're talking about here, it either has to be made today um, using – obviously, these patterns don't exist anymore. But, you know, making well, them – Well, but they do. They do that. So, well, the people that – uh, make either made-to-measure or bespoke clothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, often use patterns that have been in the company and passed down for ages. So a, a, a really nice suit is going to be a really nice suit, and it's still going to use the basic uh, patterns. I mean, the one that I have from 50 years ago really looks like it could be either from the 1920s or today. Hmm. Now, more modern, I'll say larger companies that make suits tend to skimp on a lot of stuff because they're trying to crank them out. And there's actually been a, a trend over the last couple of decades where your formal wear looks more and more like just a really nice suit. And that's because the factories that are making these things don't want to have two different sets of, of lines, one for formal, one for mm-hmm. a suit. So they've adjusted the suits or the, the tuxes to look more like suits, right? more standard lapels, uh, that kind of thing. So they so these things do exist so the old style but I mean we're talking the stuff you're into is you know over a hundred years old you know closer to two hundred years yes old. for the most part yes uh, and but there are people who so my point is really that you can either make them new today and it sounds like people can do that or mm-hmm. you have to bid on you know antique vintage stuff which you keep your eyes open and yeah. you can find you can find these things I just got a frock coat circa nineteen hundred. Uh, just a couple of months ago, and I've I've worn it to a few shows recently wow. as a as a demonstration of this is what they were wearing back then. Aren't you afraid of something happening to it? I mean, you it's like it's like a walking museum. I mean, that's a uh, old, I you know. I am, but on the other hand, it's solidly made. Uh-huh. I mean, looking at it, there are a few stains here and there, a little bit of uh, wear over time, but for its age, it is in. Fantastic shape. Hmm. Now, have you learned a little bit on how to repair clothing? Because I would imagine you would want to upkeep a lot of this stuff uh, and not have to send it out. Or uh, I am, I am not at all talented with a needle and thread. Okay, fair um, But luckily, I know a lot of people who are. Okay, well, that's good. And they've been able to either say adjust the sleeves or uh, help put buttons back on and, and things like that. Sure. Well, I mean, that's helpful because I would think you'd want, at least I would, you know, a hands-on approach to knowing the person who's doing it, either you or someone else. Because, like I said, this stuff's you know, walking walking museum. Uh, yes. So now now your favorite time periods are the Victorian and Edwardian era. It's roughly 1837 to 1920, the era when men wore hats. So let's talk about some of the clothes, the formal clothes that were standard at that time. Uh, why don't we start with coats? Since you've already mentioned a frock coat several times, what is a frock coat? It's a, I guess it basically it's it's a much longer garment. It's fairly heavy. It's it's much sturdier. Uh, basically, the what we know as the modern suit jacket was referred to back then as a sack coat. Okay, and it was. Uh, less stiff. It wasn't as um, fully lined inside. If if you know the the way a suit is constructed, you've got both your your lining on the inside and you've got the outer layer of the the heavier fabric. But often inside those two, you have a layer of a canvas or horsehair or something to help it maintain its shape. Mm, okay. And the 
earlier garments had a lot more of that, and the sack coats were a little less uh, regimented on the inside. They didn't use as much, so it was a softer shape, I guess, overall, and it was lighter to wear. Got it. But this would be something you would wear to a, a formal dinner or an outing. Um, the the sack coats were no, the frock coats. Yes, were were more formal. Um, when you dressed for dinner, it was basically white tie. Mm-hmm. You had a, a tailcoat. You had your um, stiff fronted uh, shirt. You had the waistcoat. You had the you know underneath the tailcoat. You had your detachable collar with your uh, white. Uh, stiff Marcella bow tie, uh, the standard um, uh, striped trousers, mm-hmm. or the later on the the black with the. Basically, your tuxedo trousers are going to be the the same material as your coat with that satin stripe down the side. Right, and that's that differentiates the tuxedo or formal trouser from your everyday wear. Although uh, in England, you have your uh, what's known as morning dress, and that's a cutaway coat with a uh, dove gray or uh, buff colored waistcoat and the striped trousers. Right. So, in... and that's what you would think of as, say, a butler wearing. Okay. <laughs> you know, right. that's it's it's really that kind of standard look. Yeah. Well, you know, you bring up a good point. Should we talk first about what each of the styles of dress are, and then go into the individual items, or should you, or do, would you rather do it by Items, coats, pants, stuff like that. Uh, whatever, whatever makes sense. I mean, the um, your overall dress codes stay pretty much the same. It's just that obviously what you're wearing within that definition changes a bit. Right. But what is what is the most formal now? White tie is what was the most formal, say in in Victorian. Time. Got it. I mean, and that's at the upper ends of the dress code. It stayed pretty much the same, and then over time, the lower levels have gotten much more casual as as we enter modern day. Got it. For example, uh, even if you were at work, say you worked in an office in uh, Queen Victoria's time. You wouldn't take your jacket off. You'd be wearing your waistcoat and your jacket. Shirt sleeves were basically seen as underwear because that was under your jacket. So unless there was nobody else in the office, you wouldn't necessarily take your jacket off and show your shirt sleeves right. while you were working. Wow, that's a weird concept. Uh, now, I- exactly. And now it's you know pretty much anything goes. It's just it's it's amazing how those rules go out the window once um, and there, there's all kinds of interconnected things that allow this to happen. It's advances in manufacturing technology, but it's also advances in cleaning technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the reason why we have cufflinks today, that's a holdover from when your cuffs were detachable from the shirt. Right. They were separate. Because your cuff and your collar were the items that got – they were the most seen because you were wearing a jacket, but they got dirtier faster. And because it was tough to clean them and keep them in that very, very stiff shape, those were sent out to be cleaned by a professional laundry. So even the folks that didn't have a lot of disposable income, say the, the uh, clerical folks – your, your various vicars and what have you, they would still send out their collars hmm. because there were, there were very special uh, steaming devices that were uh, basically a round shape that they could put the collar around and steam it in place so it would be nice and stiff. Well, th- you know, and I got to tell you, that is one of the inventions, or I should say innovations, that I'm kind of surprised it's gone away and hasn't come back because that's an amazing idea to have detachable collars and detachable cuffs. Now, I do know that they would have to be interchangeable, so they'd have to be white all the time, and we have very stylized shirts now. But Well, but if you, 
if you think of the classic Wall Street look, mm-hmm. which would be, say, a, a blue or a colorful striped shirt with a white collar and white cuffs, mm-hmm. that's a holdover from when your cuffs and collars were the same you know right. they they were white right. because that's you know that's what you had i did find uh just recently there's a uh basically a tailor in australia who still makes a uh, detachable cuff and collar shirts you can find detachable collar shirts around uh because once again uh your clerical uh folks still wear them hmm. so you, you but, go out and buy one of these today you could buy a detachable correct huh. Correct, and I was I was really happy when I found that they made them with the the cuffs as well because that's much harder to find. And just even as an example to show how this all worked, uh, I need to go ahead and get me one. But it's um, I still find it it fascinating that the uh, your shirt, particularly your your say your formal shirts. Now even today, if you get a tuxedo shirt, there will be studs. You know, you can get convertible ones that do have buttons, mm-hmm. and they have buttons on the cuffs. But you can flip that cuff over, and there are holes for you to use with cufflinks, and there should be holes for you to use studs with the shirt. Right. Well, you would use studs to hold both the shirt together and your waistcoat together. In addition to, you would have studs for, uh, or links for your cuffs and to hold the collar on Hmm. and that was when i started doing this uh i had some friends in the uh, lolita fashion community that were putting on a convention here in town and they wanted to have programming for the boyfriends husbands the gentlemen that were there and i offered to do one on how to tie bow ties ascots you know if they want to look as nice as their uh, female counterparts how they can uh, find the pieces and wear them properly. So I started buying lots of cufflinks and other items to use as examples. And I found that quite a lot of people that are selling these things don't quite understand what it is they have. Because you would buy a lot of cufflinks, and what you would have would be some cufflinks, and then a ton of shirt and collar studs. That, trust mm. me, do not work as cufflinks. They're just not made. <laughs> uh, in fact, with your um, with your cuffs, it's like a buttonhole on both sides. So it's straight across, and they match mm-hmm. in direction. Right. The shirt that I have that's that's basically based off a vintage pattern. They go opposite directions. You've got on the inside, I believe it's vertical. On the outside, it's – well, no, it's – on the inside, it's horizontal. On the outside, it's vertical. So once you've got a stud in place, it's not going anywhere. Right. Secure. Right. And a lot of these studs were actually referred to as uh, – they're the pipe stem style. So you have the, the basic head of the stud, the button that's going to be seen on the outside. But on the inside, it's a long tube with another – piece of uh, thin metal in it that slides in and out of that tube. So basically you slide it in so that one side is shorter, fit that through, and then you can you fit the long side through, the shorter end fits then in, and then you slide it back through. And most of them are kind of spring-loaded, so it slides back through on its own. That way you've got a very long piece on the inside that's not going anywhere, particularly if you turn it so it's uh, perpendicular to the horizontal slot on the inside of the shirt. It's really not going anywhere. But right. if you try to use that pipe stem style as a cufflink, because those the two buttonholes are both long in the same direction, it'll fall out immediately. You know, and it's funny because starch plays a big role in the history of fashion. And, you know, there's the saying, he's got too much starch in his shirt. A lot of these shirts, even today, are starched within an inch of their life. Yes. And that also helps keep a lot of this stuff. I mean, it requires shirt studs to keep it in place because it is so stiff, but it also helps keep it in place because it increases resistance and friction and all that science. Exactly. 
exactly. But that's, I have to tell you, uh, if I ever find the name of the individual who did invent the soft collar, um, statues will be erected. Uh, <laughs> after having yeah. worn period um, stiff collars, I mean, I have a couple of examples. Luckily, they are too small to even fit my neck, but they are basically celluloid. So they're almost Ooh. a type of plastic, and they are so solid, it's oh. unbelievable to think about wearing one of those for an hour, much less an entire day. And I bet you had to build up like a callus around your neck. I you mean, would, I, you and know, it gets... I have to. I'll, I'll wear... Uh, for example, if I'm doing a, a panel at a at a show on uh, Victorian gentlemen's wear, I will wear my stiff fronted shirt with the detachable collar that day. But the next day, I will probably be wearing a very, very, very soft silk ascot on the inside of the collar of whatever shirt I'm wearing because it just yeah. destroys your neck. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, you have to make sure you've got a really nice close clean shave so there's mm -hmm. not going to be a lot of uh oh yeah stiff bristles to to oh man it's it's amazing how really stiff and uncomfortable those things are now if you <laughs> but but this is this goes back oh. to something that a lot of people today don't understand fit is very very important mm -hmm. and i've i've only just learned my standard neck size is a 16 and a half Basically, for these detachable collar shirts, what I should really be doing is getting a 17 shirt and a 17 and a half collar. Okay. That way, it's there's enough space so it is not up against my neck all the time. And you talk to a lot of people and they don't like wearing uh, ties because they, they don't like having something that tight against their neck. Well, that means they've been buying shirts with too tight of a collar. Mm -hmm. If you get something that is comfortable enough and you can get a couple of fingers in there, um, you won't feel it. You know, the idea is that you mm. tie the tie to the shirt and not to your neck. Right, so if, right, right. if your collar fits properly, the tie will fit properly on that collar and you still have enough room to turn your head. Right. Um, trying to drive with that stiff collar on and the stiff fronted shirt is a challenge because once you you know once you've put it all on, it's still very very fresh and starched and sharp. And then immediately getting in the car and trying to go somewhere, um, you have to turn your entire trunk to look each direction, and uh, it's sometimes menace. Yeah, it's, you're a menace on the road. You got it. It's a challenge. That's. Well, I'm. I guess I'm. I'm glad that those things don't exist anymore. Although I do think it is. I still stand by my my statement that having a detachable collar would be really cool, so you can clean them separately. Yeah. Uh, now, now we talked about. Let's talk about cufflinks really quickly. You mentioned them. I just wanted to talk about that. There's a couple different types of them. I think people are mostly familiar with the swivel type. Yeah, um, that that modern toggle. Yeah, yeah, and and it's they're. I mean, they they work really well. Um, but there's also double panel and silk knots. Silk knots are really big in the '90s, uh, but they're kind of like um, it's almost like it's like a cheaper version of of like metal cufflinks. They're they're like usually silk or or um, or some kind of polyester, and they t there's two like one knot at one end, one knot at the other, right. and they kind of hold it in a place. little bit of elastic, elastic on the inside. Yeah, those yeah. Uh, more often than not, those will come with shirts today. Right. I mean, if you're buying right. a French cuff shirt, you can see, oh, it's got a silk knot there. Um, I know a lot of uh, folks use the silk knots not necessarily on their cuffs, but they'll stick them in their lapel as a little pop mm. of color. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's a good idea. I like that idea. Um, there's also double panel, which is basically it's like two flat ends of cufflink so that both ends of your Correct. shirt You've got have, a, a have little bit of bling on each side right. of your wrist and the right. the more i run across those i like those a little better than mm -hmm. the standard toggle they are yeah, a, a little bit more difficult to get through because you, you know you've got the little chain or link in the middle and you've got the um 
however big that disc or or piece is, you have to slide it through, you know, basically two layers of shirt in each mm-hmm. direction. But right. they look nicer. They look cleaner because you've got something on each side that either matches or is complementary. There's a, a really neat style um, that basically it's a snap. And so you've got your, hmm. you know, very nice uh, artwork, you know, your, your highly decorated mother of pearl or whatever piece to go on the outside but it goes on the outside of each wrist and it just snaps in the middle. One of the brands is uh, come apart and those, they started selling those. I've seen ads from, I think the 1890s and then I've definitely run across some from the 1950s. Wow. When you said, uh, I thought you said new and I was like, Oh, this sounds like a great invention. And then you said 1890 yep. and then I had to just check my some of this really stuff. Is, yeah. Some of this stuff is actually a lot older than you would think. But I yeah. Still I mean, think that's a great fascinating. idea. No, totally. Um, I mean, it's, and it sounds like a new idea today because we're so used to the swivel, um, uh, that, you know, even double panel, some people are like, I don't even know what that is. And then we say, Oh yeah, well that's that, but also yeah. check it out. You can snap them in the middle. Oh, that's cr- amazing! Who thought of that? Particularly right, if you want to, yeah. Particularly if you want to roll your sleeve up, mm-hmm. you know, definitely unsnap it and roll it up. They stay in place. Um, they they are kind of a little pain to get in. That's the, that's the thing about the toggle is it just slips right through. Anything else may take a little bit of time, and sometimes it's you know for me at least it's easier to go ahead and put the cufflinks in before you put the shirt on. Right. Uh, particularly with that stiff fronted shirt of mine, I kind of learned my lesson and I try to get the studs in first before I pull it on over my head. Otherwise it's, you know, you drop one and it's another five minutes before you find it again. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, well, let's talk about tied accessories because there are several more than people. Th- I think more than people know for the most part, mm-hmm. but I'm going to just list off a couple. Tell me if I've missed any, then we'll hit them in detail. Sure. But you got, you got your ascots. We've mentioned those earlier. You've got a cravat. You got a foliard or uh, foliard. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Uh, foliard. And unfortunately have- those are the, the more people use terms incorrectly, they become interchangeable. So there's a bunch of different styles of neckwear but you have uh, if you if you lay them out side by side it's much easier to tell mm-hmm. what they are than when right. they're on if that makes sense no that totally makes sense yeah because like uh, a cravat and an ascot i bet people would get those confused um yep. but they are very different well in a a lot of people basically a standard necktie is is basically a cravat now standard necktie is like the long necktie that you wear with like a suit correct um that was the the cravat was the first what we would know as a necktie as as neckwear in the 30 years war so we're talking i guess the 1650s Mm -hmm. there were croatian military military uh actually i meant to say mercenaries that were hired to fight in the Thirty Years' War. And they wore these brightly colored bits of cloth tied around their necks. Everyone who saw those thought, that's cool. (laughs) I'm going to do that. Uh And there's there's this history of what the, you know, those really dashing young military men, what they were wearing as part of their uniform becomes standard – uh, civilian wear down the road, and this is one of those examples. That makes sense. The um, basically the later on the the Regency type of silhouette, just the very tight trousers, um, tight waistcoat, that kind of thing. That came out of what the militaries were wearing at the time, and because the ladies were swooning over those uh, soldiers in their tight trousers. Mm-hmm. And that were not soldiers decided to go to their tailors and have their trousers made rather tight. It's just that's <laughs> the trend that exists today. Exactly, that's just the way it is. 
But so out of the uh, Croatian cravat, we get the various neckties and neckcloths and ascots and things we have today. Got it. Um, so what, so what would be the difference between an ascot and a necktie, for example? Okay. So your necktie is, as we know them, you've got, uh, a, a thicker blade and a thinner blade at the other end. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a, you know, fairly long, uh, it's meant to stop at your belt buckle, stop at your waist. And, um, so both ends, uh, can be tied, you know, I think there's like a thousand different ways. Your ascot, it's two much wider blades that match in width. Okay. And it's also shorter. And then that, that middle piece that goes around your neck can either be cut specifically so it's just a thin piece of cloth, or more often what I've seen is the width is the same from end to end, but it is pleated in the middle, the piece that goes around your neck. Mm, so that makes okay. it that thin piece that goes, you know, it matches the, the, I guess, the height of your collar, the width of your collar. But the other ends are both the blades are still um, uh, five, six inches wide, I guess. And then you can tie it multiple ways, but if you're going to tie it like you would tie a regular necktie, like a four in hand, it's going to be very, very short. So you're going to want to wearing a waistcoat over it. But you can do the standard uh, Hollywood style, which is it's tucked inside the collar. And it's just you cross it over, pull the piece through the, uh, the inner so it's just looped over the outside, tighten it up, and you're good to go. But then you can tie it like a bow tie. You put it around the collar. You can tie it like a bow tie, but pull the loose ends on through. And you've got what you see mostly as people wearing ascots in, in period dramas. You've got the knot there, but then you've got the two blades. You cross one over the other one, and you pin it in place. And once again, everybody's wearing a waistcoat, so you don't see the, the short ends just hanging out in the middle of your shirt. And that's what they got going on in Downton Abbey, right? Correct. Well, in the earlier, that's the great thing about Downton Abbey is that because it covers such a huge amount of time, you get to see how fashions change and yes. how, I mean, um, I certainly remember the episode when somebody showed up for dinner wearing the tuxedo jacket versus the, uh, the, the, uh, tails that everyone else was oh, wearing, yes. how, how big of a stir that caused because <laughs> right. it really did. I mean, that's the, the modern, what we think of as a modern tuxedo jacket is a, it was an American invention because someone, uh, in tuxedo, New York wanted something a little more casual to wear to, to formal dinner and had one made. And of course, all of the young guys who, hated having to dress so formally with the full white tie, uh, dove on it and uh, adapted it in droves. <laughs> that is amazing. The young people always drive fashion. doesn't matter the era. Um, oh, yeah. What do, you, what do you think about bolo ties? These aren't cloth-based, but they're definitely got tie in the name. Yeah, that's – I mean, that, once again, that's a more uh, – locational thing i guess you would say yeah the, the very western u.s um i don't really know the origin of them but they're you know they're perfectly acceptable even in informal situations if you're going to wear you know that instead of a uh standard bow tie hmm. i mean that that's that's perfectly acceptable now, do people still wear tailcoats we've mentioned them a few times i've been meaning to ask this do people still wear tailcoats uh, yes. But once again, it fits that more – if you're going to a much more formal event, your tailcoat is what you should be wearing. And you see um, uh, conductors wear them today. Um, it just – it's one of those you know people would wear it, say, to the opera opening night, mm -hmm. those, those types of situations, an actual black tie. I mean a – if an event stipulates white tie. Like an actual formal, very formal ballroom dance, a waltz, that kind of thing. It'll say white tie. 
that's what you wear. But it also right. is acceptable in black tie and other situations. It's just it's actually a little more formal than what the invitation calls for. Right. But shouldn't which is okay. Yeah, shouldn't you always strive to be the best dressed person in the room? I agree with you one hundred percent. One of the things while researching this, I found interesting is during this era, there are lots of accessories for just about everything, including including neckwear, uh, which would include a collar bar and a tie pin. And even um, a tie bar that kind of holds your tie. All these things kind of hold your tie in place. Right. Uh, but the collar bar was something I'd, I've never heard of before, but that's something that goes at the top by the knot to keep your knot in place. Correct. Right? It goes it, – it works better with a um, st- uh, straight pointed collar where the points go straight down. And basically it goes between – it, it holds the two collar points together underneath your knot, so it holds the knot up and away from the shirt. It's a much more polished and finished look. Definitely. Um, it, um, if you've heard of a tab collar, that's what the tab does, is that's either a strip of cloth that either buttons or snaps uh, in between the two points of the collar to hold that, that tie knot up. Mm-hmm. And uh, Daniel Craig has worn a couple of uh, tab collar shirts as James Bond. That is true, Mister Tuxedo. That's what I call him. Yeah. Now let's move on. Now hats are kind of uh, they're very popular with women. Very very popular women in formal settings. Not as popular with men. They've kind of gone out of style. But can we talk about the history of hats? Because I found this to be extremely interesting. Sure. All right, so first of all, I love the term haberdashery, which is, as most people know, a place where you get hats, and a haberdasherer is someone who fixes mm-hmm. hats. Uh, let's talk about... So let, we'll, we'll talk about the hat. You tell me the, what, what, when this hat was popular, what it was used for, and I'll tell you some people, uh, some touchstones for people to know what who wore these types of hats. So the first okay. one is a bowler. Uh, has nothing to do with bowling, I nope. found out. Very disappointed in that. Uh, so you got Stymie from the Little Rascals, Charlie Chaplin, Evan Costello, Laurel and Hardy, the Riddler, and Seamus McFly all wore bowler hats. Yep. Uh, wh- what what part of the population was this popular with? It, well, it was originally uh, requested by a gentleman named. Uh, well, I'm I'm. I tend to get these confused. It's known as a Coke hat. Okay. Uh, Lock and Company in uh, London still sells them as Coke hats. They were the ones to make the first one. But I believe it was requested by a Mr. Bowler, but it was for his uh, gamekeepers to wear because Hmm. the taller top hats were getting knocked off by branches as they were riding through the forest. Sure. These were basically meant as riding helmets. And if you've ever mm. felt an actual honest-to-goodness bowler-slash-coke hat, they are lacquered within an inch of their lives. Um, really? They are, I, that I didn't they know. are solid. Uh, I do have one that my wife got me as a, a Christmas gift one year. It's, um, it's a much later period, but it's an actual lock and company coke hat, and it is very, very solid. Uh, what you find today are often uh, felt, and they're just basically the soft felt. They're much more comfortable because they're not as heavy, but they don't serve the purpose of being basically a riding helmet and to you know mm. protect them from, say, a poacher sneaking up and hitting them over the head from behind. Um, odd job in Goldfinger. Right, <laughs> Now makes a lot more sense because mm-hmm. if you've ever felt a regular felt bowler, you don't imagine that being heavy enough to be right. thrown and cause any damage, even sure. with a bladed rim. Um, no, a coke hat can uh-huh. do some damage even without the blade. It's like a bowling ball, which some people may think Almost, that's how they got yep. the name, but it's not. It, it Correct. Uh, also called a derby in the U.S., Yes. So now you mentioned the top hat. Let's talk about top hats. Now this has a very upper class image. It's typically used by magicians to pull rabbits out of. The Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland yep. War One, Uncle Sam, Frosty the Snowman. Uh, a lot of magic associated with the top hat. 
but also the the air of capitalism and and the evil corporate empire. So how did yep. this start, and where are they now? Um, you know, I don't actually know where the first top hat came from, but it was it was definitely what everyone was wearing. It's the lower classes would kind of get uh, you know hand me downs or what have you, but everybody wore those those tall hats. The um, they were made. Um, basically, I've run across two different types. There's your silk collapsible that we've seen that you would wear to, say, the opera. You would collapse it, stick it under your seat, and then when it was time to go, you would pop it back open. That mm -hmm. shows up in a lot of magic acts. Definitely. Then there was your, your seal or beaver fur um, solid top hat. And that's what people would wear out on the street every day. Um, they got to be known as, uh, once again, your, your most formal is your white tie. That's what magicians would be wearing on stage. Mm, right. Right, right. And, um, we didn't really talk about this with jackets, but for example, there's some pretty famous pictures of, uh, Harry Houdini mm -hmm. wearing white tie, but with his sleeves rolled up, you know, and a ton of manacles on. Well, if you notice, he has both his jacket sleeves unbuttoned and rolled up in addition to his shirt sleeves. Those are referred to as surgeon's cuffs because there were no lab coats back then. Surgeons wore basically what everyone else was wearing to work, which would be a nice long frock coat. And they might put an apron on over it, but to get their sleeves out of the way, they would unbutton them and roll them up so those buttons worked your modern suits it's an illusion there might be buttons sewn on the outside but they certainly don't work if you find a suit that has working buttons um that's a sign of extremely uh quality tailoring hmm or an old vintage or, or an both. old vintage but once again if you buy it off the you won't buy them off the rack Right. With the working buttons because you can't adjust the mm -hmm. sleeve length at that point. Right, 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 right. So it's either custom made or made to measure. Right, right, right. And a lot of people that they'll they'll leave one undone just to show that yes, <laughs> that is working uh buttonholes on their, their jacket. The other side of magicians wearing that formal wear you're not supposed to wear your hat indoors, but it makes mm, a great right. prop. Right. The pulling the rabbit out of the hat originally was the magician making the rabbit fur lining on the inside of the hat come to life. Oh, oh, that's oh, okay. That makes way more sense as a as a, as a, exactly. as a magic act. Exactly, and because it was so popular other magicians borrowed that shall we say for their own act and it became almost ubiquitous you think of the magician you think of pulling a rabbit out of a hat but the actual origin of the trick has become lost hmm that's fascinating i didn't know that but that makes so much more sense especially as a cohesive magic act so, you know with the beginning it, you know each everything tells a story and that tells a much yep. better story yep I also forgot to mention that a very famous person wore a top hat, and that was Willy Wonka, and his was orange. Yes. So let's talk about the pork pie hat, which while well, going over this, this isn't so much formal wear, but uh, I, I didn't realize this was a real hat until I, I, I was researching this. So some people who wore this, most recently Heisenberg from Breaking Bad, uh, Rocky, mm -hmm. Fozzie Bear, Yogi Bear, very popular amongst the Grizzly set, and Top Cat, who was one of my favorite cartoons growing up. Where did this come from? And and this is not a formal hat at all, I should say. Right. Well, now it's not formal. I oh. mean, back when back when everybody wore hats, uh -huh. you had a ton of different styles that people would wear. Um, yes, going out for the evening, you pretty much wore the top hat. But as you were going off to work, um, particularly if you look at, say, street scenes, photographs from... Uh, late Victorian Edwardian, uh, there were a ton of different hat styles shown. You had your pork pies, you had your Homburgs, you had 
uh, all different manner of, of types of hats. Now, pork pie I'm not as familiar with. I'm not sure exactly where those came from. But it's, an, it's a very uh, distinctive style of hat because it's got that much shorter brim than what other, other uh, say, fedoras or trilbies or what have you. Now, um, if I can shift over to the fedora for a second. Sure. A, um, fedoras have much wider brims than what a lot of people think. They're, often people wear a trilby thinking it's a fedora, and it is not. <laughs> right. But the fedora was originally a woman's hat. Okay. <laughs> the soft felt hat made its first appearance in a play called Fedora worn by the actress Sarah Bernhardt. And she popularized it. Women wore it. It was, once again, it was a softer felt hat than the stiffer uh, items that they had been wearing. And over time, gentlemen started wearing it, so now it's known as a men's hat rather than a women's. Hmm. But it started out as a female item of, of clothing. That's really interesting, I mean, especially the very popular now. I mean, this is like, this is a must-have in the hipster world. You have to have several fedora hats. Mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully they are fedoras and not trilbies. That is a huge uh, sticking point with a lot of people. Well, it's a sticking point with me right now since I just heard about it. <laughs> What's a trilby? Let's get this a right. Trilby, well, a trilby has a much... A shorter brim. It's much tighter to the the body of the hat. Okay. I mean, so how if, can you if tell you the think difference? Of, well, if, if you think of say what um, Indiana Jones. Okay. That's that's pretty much the most famous fedora uh, people would recognize today. Okay, got it. Frank Sinatra mostly wore trilbies, the Rat Pack, got in it. say the sixties. Those were much shorter brimmed hats. That's the that's the quickest and easiest visual uh, explanation I can provide. That is a great explanation because most hipster hats would be trilbies then, and not yes. fedoras. Uh, now let's talk about the Hamburg, which is also very similar to both the fedora and the trilby, but it's not. And is that really just the the indentation in the hat that's not there, that's absent in the Hamburg? Um, it's got that shorter brim, mm -hmm. and yeah, it's got a much uh, it's got a different uh, style to the uh, the crown, the top of the hat, and it's okay. got that um, the indentation uh, is just different. the The front of the hat is known as the pinch because that's where you would put your your fingers to to tip the hat or take it off. On a fedora, a trilby, it's fairly well pronounced. The the pinch, a Hamburg's a little rounder. I believe I'm, I'm less well versed in, in hat lore. Well, I think you're nailing it. You're doing a good job. Now let's talk about this also kind of blew my mind when talking about fashion is that belts are kind of a faux pas in the formal world. You want to wear braces. That's the UK term or suspenders as we know them in the United yes. States. Uh, why is that? How did this come to be? Well, it's you're trying to think of the best way. Historically, your pants were worn higher. So uh, suspenders were the traditional method for keeping your, your pants uh, where they needed to be. Uh, belts have always been around, but you were never supposed to see the waist. That's why we have waistcoats. That's why... You have uh, cummerbunds with your formal wear. You shouldn't see that division where your shirt mm. goes into your trousers. Got it. And that's a couple of different things here. A, your ties used to be shorter in length because your pants were worn higher. So if you're trying to uh, date a vintage piece of neckwear, you actually go by the length rather than the width. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because width actually can fluctuate within a particular decade. But the one true way of knowing how old a tie is, is by that length. A tie from the 1940s is only going to be about 40 inches 
you know, within 40 to 50 inches long because it didn't need to go down as far because your pants were worn a little higher. Got it. And you were probably going to be wearing a waistcoat or something over it. Much more modern ties are much longer because the pants are worn much lower. Um, that's another thing I, I really kind of hate seeing is people wearing waistcoats that are too short or too tight. You should never actually see a uh, belt buckle if you're wearing a belt or the waistband or, heaven forbid, a bloused shirt coming out from underneath your waistcoat. Think of it as a <laughs> waistcoat rather than a vest, and it makes uh -huh. a lot more sense. It's right. supposed to cover your waist. If you can see your shirt or your belt, it's not long enough or it's just way too small for you. Right. You should never get that the little X around a button from the pinched cloth. Mm -hmm. That's how you know it's too tight. If you see somebody wearing even a, a jacket or a waistcoat and it's just pinched at each button, it's, it's far too small. You know, it, I probably should have mentioned that earlier because a waistcoat is really, when I think about it, it would think of something that goes on, you know, covers your waist, which is what you're saying its purpose is. However, it looks like a vest because it is a vest. So it is like right. the, 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 the vest underneath. Right, yeah. correct. And just when we're talking the differences between uh, English and American terms, an undershirt is a vest over in England. Mm, okay. So that's if you think of it that way, you know, but I, I always just refer to it as a waistcoat to help drive home the point that it should be covering your waist. Sure. No, that, and that's, that makes sense. The, the cummerbund came from uh, British officers working in tropical climates like India. They had their full backed waistcoats with their mess dress uniforms. A, they started using backless waistcoats because that would be much cooler. But then they saw the natives were wearing this sash around their waist. And that's where the cummerbund came from, was to mimic that sash, which is, once again, much cooler than even a backless waistcoat. Yes. And those sashes were folded in such a way that you could use those folds as your pockets. Oh. So when you put on a standard modern cummerbund that's not a, an actual all the way around sash, the openings need to go up because that would be where you would put your tickets and, you know, whatever you needed instead of in your pockets. They would be tucked into the folds of the cummerbund. Right. That makes sense. And it's extremely functional, by the way, yep. Jason. Yep. And once again, it covers your waist. You wouldn't see the... Um, uh, either wear the suspenders buttoned to the, the trousers, because you can do them either on the outside or on the inside, or heaven forbid if you're wearing a belt. Right. But for the much more formal, God I mean, if you're you. going to a formal event, those pants are going to be held up with suspenders. Yes. I mean, there are no belt loops on tuxedo pants. Right. There shouldn't be. <laughs> there shouldn't be. <laughs> right. That is correct. Um, well, we're running out of time here. This has been extremely educational, and I know people can find you in person in Atlanta at a wonderful place called Blackbird Finery, correct? Well, uh, yes, I don't have a physical location, but I what? am here in Atlanta, and I do. Uh, it's all either virtual or I do a lot of local uh, conventions. Uh, there's actually a Doctor Who convention called Who Lanta that's coming up in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to be there. Um, I don't have I don't really have enough stock to to actually have a brick and mortar store as much as I would like to. But you do sell merchandise. You can get a hold yes. of this stuff for people. Yes. Uh, how do people find your um, what's your, what's your website? Uh, BlackbirdFinery.com. I'm also on Facebook and Etsy is Blackbird Finery. And I'm you know I do things around Atlanta. I'll do the occasional trunk show. Um, I actually offer a service where I will help uh, grooms and their parties at weddings make sure they are properly attired, they have their ties tied, I, you know, act as a groom's valet, and that's always a lot of fun. That's, they call it a valet in Downton Abbey, and I get a lot of yes. flack for saying that, but that's what they say on valet, the show. Valet, yes. 
They don't like the French. They don't like the French phrasing in that particular time right. period. It's very very tenuous between England and France at the time, people. Correct. Always has been. Yes. It's a very, very volatile situation. Well, Jason Merrill, thank you so much for being on the program today. This has been absolutely educational, and I think I will look 10 times better on Formal Fridays, and now I think I may take up three-piece Thursdays. So thank you. Uh, I think you should. Thank you for having me. This has been a blast. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode or follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, which, besides being incredibly clever and, and fun to read, will tell you all about upcoming guests as well as new projects that I'm starting. And you can subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play. And if you want to check out everything that I do, go to DanielJGlenn.com. Thank you so much for listening. And of transmission.